So, let me just uh, jump in. Let me open in prayer and just ask the Lord to lead and direct our time together, and then uh, we'll, we'll jump into the Word. So, Father, we just, today we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your nearness. Thank you for your body, the way we experience you uh, through each other. We're so grateful for that. And so we say thank you for it. We've enjoyed it today, and we're grateful for it. And we're grateful for your nearness, that we know that the uncreated God is in our midst. And that is hard for us to comprehend, and yet it's true. And so we say thank you for it. We honor you for it. Where Our hearts are so grateful. We ask you to lead the rest of our time together however you want to. Whatever you want to do or whatever you want to say, that's what we want. That really is what we desire. So I'm asking for your help that you would speak and lead and direct in whatever way you want to. We want to hear from you. We want to hear from you in a way that produces a shift and a change and a transition in any way you want to. You might want to speak new things to us. You might just want to remind us of things you've, you've said before, and yet they're living and true because they're things you've said. And so either way, we want it. And so we ask you to lead and guide and direct our time today that would produce the fruit that you want. And so we give you this time, ask you to lead it with expectation. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, well, um, I'm going to share with you today a little bit on a subject that I believe the Lord put on my heart. I'm going to just share some thoughts that, that I wrote down, but I'm also going to give you a job, right? You don't get to come and uh, zone out and listen to my talking. I'm going to give you a job, which is to kind of discern the word with me. I, this subject was put on my heart, and, and again, I'm going to share what I believe the, the Lord put on my heart, but some of these are brand new things, and so we need to discern them together, if that makes sense. That, that when the Lord speaks, it takes an act of corporate discernment to go, that's the piece that we really need from the Lord, if that makes sense, or we need to develop that out a little bit more. So I'm going to invite you into a discerning process with me, but probably all of you know we had a couple uh, days, some of us had a couple days together earlier in the week, and uh, just reflecting out of those days, and specifically thinking about today, my heart was pulled to a specific subject, and it's a subject of accusation. That, that for whatever reason, I, it seems to me we talk about it frequently in the church. Maybe we don't. I, I don't know if, if you guys have frequent conversations about it, but it was just highlighted to me. And so I want to speak out of it, and then I want to invite you to discern with me because I, I think there's some things here. And I just want to say this, that the issue of accusation is fundamental to our crisis. And when I say our crisis, I mean the condition we're in, right? Where the earth is, is not yet, and it's perfectly re re uh, redeemed state. We still deal with the influence of the powers. We still deal with the influence and the effects of sin, even in our own sanctification. And so I think it's important for us to recognize exactly how accusation inserted itself um, and then why it's so foundational. And I want to say this. 
in my opinion, we tolerate, celebrate, and propagate accusation. Right? And we do this internally, meaning our own internal conversations, and we do it externally to each other. And I believe if this gets resolved, the effects are tremendous. And, and I'll give you a couple reasons, couple reasons why. One is I would say this, that the, uh, those three words, the, the toleration, celebration, and propagation of accusation actually, I'll say it this way, delay the return of Jesus. When I say delay, I think all of you know that I, the Lord is leading history. I'm talking about our experience of it. Of course, he leads history. We're not saying he's uh, it, not accomplishing what he wants when he wants, but in a sense, it delays it, and it denies Jesus his inheritance. Okay, and hopefully that becomes clear as, as we kind of open the subject. I'll also say this. I'll, I'll give you a Bible verse for this in a little bit. The age actually does not end until the saints overcome this issue in a decisive way. And I'll, I'll give you a verse for that in a minute. But the Satan, or our, our opponent, is actually enthroned by accusation. And we'll look at those verses in a minute that, that may be quite familiar to you, but he's actually enthroned by it, which means he doesn't lose his place until we learn actually how to, how to triumph over this. Because he's not enthroned so much on the basis of his power or his might. Humans were given dominion over this realm. He's actually enthroned by our agreement with him. Us yielding to him. And I've, often that's not a conscious, fully aware yielding. Most humans are not saying, I want to exalt the Satan and give him his place of influence. But he operates in such a way that he is enthroned um, essentially by us, and accusation is, is key to that. But the good news is there's an incredibly powerful weapon for dethroning accusation, which is the grace of God. And, and so there, we will have good news, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But let's, let's jump in and go look at kind of how all this started. I'm going to start in Genesis 3 because, because that's where it started, and, and because I love this the further I go, I just keep loving Genesis because it just sets so many things, uh, gives us so many foundations. But uh, let me give you just a little bit of a definition of accusation. Again, I'm not saying this is a formal definition, but it just kind of hones in our thinking. But I would say this, accusation is any statement or idea that distorts reality. And when I say that, I mean distorts God's perspective of reality and is intended to further produce a distorted reality. See, accusation is based on distortion, and it produces distortion. That's, that's the thing you've got to see. And that distortion leads to shame and condemnation. And not only that, what, 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 all, what we're going to see is that accusation creates distance. And by that, I mean ungodly distance. Distance between people, and then distance between us and God. Okay, it's typically based on wrong information, distorted information, or wrong conclusions on right information. And your data is right, but your conclusion is, is, is way off. Okay, so, so let's look at this. I'm looking at Genesis chapter 3, the interactions between the serpent and Eve. 
I'm just going to summarize this quickly because most of you are probably familiar with it. If it's a new passage to you, Genesis 3 verses 1 through 5 is kind of what I'm pulling from. And we know what happened here, or, or you might be familiar with what happened here, but it says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast that the Lord had made. And he came to the woman and he began this conversation, right? Did God really say this? Right? You can see the accusations in his tone from the beginning, right? And, and you saw that Eve's, Eve's, uh, Eve's responses to him kind of repeating. This is what God said. He said he, we could eat. In this, in this case, the issue is food. We can eat of any tree except there's that one tree. And then the serpent keeps kind of launching accusations. And, and if you notice, his accusation is actually God-oriented, <laughs> Well, God told you that because, and he begins to sow these seeds of accusation against, against God's character, right? God, God only gave you that rule because God doesn't really want you to come into the fullness of who you were made to be. The irony of this temptation is she's tempted by the very thing she's destined to inherit, right? His temptation is not to some horrible, crazy sin, Right? He basically says, God doesn't want you to do this because he doesn't want you to grow in capacity, glory, and majesty. And the, 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 the thing about the passage is this actually is her destiny, is to grow into glory and capacity and majesty. And, and, I'll, and, and there's actually dimensions to this temptation, which are, aren't my main point. But depending on what what English Bible you're using, this passage gets translated a little bit differently because sometimes it gets translated as, um, uh, which, what, what is the verse? Um, verse 5, for God knows that when you eat, you'll be like God. Some of your English translations say when, when, you, uh, uh, when you eat, you'll be like the gods. And, and the difference for that translation is very simple. It's a little bit of a long explanation. But, but the point is growing in majesty and in God-likeness if that makes sense. And, and the word used here for God, is, as many of you probably know, is Elohim, which can both refer to God as the great Elohim that's in his own category, but also to majestic creatures that he's made like himself. Okay, the reason I'm making that point is because contextually, probably what the serpent is offering is not necessarily you can become like the God in the heavens, but you can become like one of us, one of me. Because a serpent is clearly a majestic spiritual being. This is not a, just a snake that slithers on the ground the way we know snakes. Uh, th th that's just clear from the context. I'm not saying he's not a snake. I'm not saying the Bible's not literal or true. But I'm saying clearly he's a, uh, some sort of being that has a glory and a sense of majesty to him. To say otherwise is, is really to... Uh, not give Eve the respect she do, is due. <laughs> Eve is a sinless, intelligent creature, and she's looking at this creature as one capable of giving her counsel. Okay, she's not being tricked by an animal. She knows she has dominion over the animals. Okay, so, so there's something going on here. But the point is, she's, she's being tricked with this idea that you can become glorious and, and majestic, and God doesn't want you to do that, be that, and it actually is her destiny. That's, that's, that, that's the distorted realm of, of accusation, right? Now, I'm going to make a few points uh, out of the language used here. I always get nervous when people say, and the Hebrew or the Greek says, because our translations are quite good. But there's some things going on here that are, that I, that are quite interesting 
and they don't change our understanding, but they do, they do enhance it, okay? The first thing, which is quite interesting, as you probably know, the, the word for serpent that is used here, uh, it, it, it's a Hebrew word, obviously. This is written in Hebrew. But the word used for serpent, and this is a bit of a wordplay that scholars would say is very intentional, is the same as the verb for divination. So, so again, you're getting this sense of this creature. After you re, keep reading the Bible and you come back to reflect in Genesis, you're going, oh, divination is attached to this creature, if that makes sense. Because the noun for serpent is literally the exact same word as the verb for divination. Does that make sense? So there's a clear wordplay. The father of divination came into the garden, is what, as, as you reflect on the scripture. Why am I saying that? I'm saying that because when we operate in the realm of accusation, it's a realm like divination. Because what is divination, right? Divination is when we manipulate data in an evil way to manipulate people. And, and we distort information and we distort truth. And that distortion then allows us to control and manipulate people and off of the destiny that God has for them. And it distorts them and it leads them into bondage. We also kind of call it witchcraft, right? Witchcraft is the use of information and power to evil ends that has distortion in it. And the result is the person that divination or witchcraft is aimed at, the goal is to distort them, to twist them into something that is not their God-ordained destiny and calling. And so I'm, I'm, I'm making a connection here for you to discern, but I would say that what's going on here, this seed of accusation is, uh, I'm not saying it's exactly equivalent, but I'm kind of saying it is equivalent to divination. In other words, it's twisting things and it produces a twisted outcome and a controlling outcome. And here's the thing. It operates two ways, as we'll see. It twists other people when we accuse them. When we release accusations against them, we get, we, those accusations have the power to essentially distort their condition and their future, especially as others join our accusations which is what witchcraft does. Let's put a, you know, a curse, a spell, so that that person is then suffering some penalty or not what they're supposed to be, which is exactly what accusation does. There's a realm of divination. Here's the other realm. When you tolerate and uh, uh, allow internal accusations, and by that I mean accusations developed against yourself, it has the same fruit. As long as you tolerate the internal realm of accusation, what happens is you are actually agreeing with the enemy to distort your future. You're allowing him to actually distort the image of God you were made to be. And it produces negative fruit and you don't walk out in obedience the calling you were meant to walk out. So when we think divination, we think this horrible thing we do against other people, which I think is part of it, but you've got to think there's a toxic thing that you do to you through accidental cooperation, right? I'm not saying that this is what's in everyone's mind, that when you accuse someone and operate in the spirit, that you're trying to destroy them. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this, it's so saturated our world, we don't recognize it, and so we're exposing it for what it is. 
okay? So don't, don't get shocked that I just upped this to divination, but I think it is of that dimension of seriousness. But I think we don't recognize it. So we're exposing it, okay? We're exposing it, but I'm, I'm certainly not accusing you of trying to operate in witchcraft, but I am saying this is, I think, what's, what's going on. And so I think these work, uh, th these word plays are not accidental, right? Divination is control, distortion, and manipulation that produces an ungodly outcome. And this happens whenever you live in accusation because you inevitably distort the reality of your own life, which deprives God. You ever thought of that? God wants something from you. He wants an inheritance that you become a person in the image of his son that he can enjoy and delight in. And when you tolerate accusation, accusation always creates space, as we'll see, creates distance. And you don't get transformed into that image he wants you to be, that he longs to see you in. And then you release that against other people as well. It manipulates their reality and distorts their future. And the enemy's goal is always death. He released the accusation against God in Genesis 3 so that Eve and then Adam would go on a path to death instead of becoming who, who they were supposed to be. There's also, there's another kind of wordplay going on in this section. Again, in the, in the original language, there's another wordplay, which is just a few verses before this, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, we're told that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Right? So again, we're supposed to meditate on these passages and go, why is that's a strange thing? Why would, why would God say that? Right? What's, what's, what points he's trying to make? And, and the word he used here, Aram, is... is, is is means naked, but the point is when the serpent comes into the garden, the next verse or the verse after, and we're told he's crafty, crafty and naked are actually spelled the same way. It's a, again, I'm not saying it's the exact same word, but it is a word play. So you're supposed to read Genesis and go, oh, they were naked and, and unashamed. The serpent came in and he, was a, he wasn't a Rome, he was a room. It's pronounced slightly differently, spelled the same. Oh, what's this wordplay? This wordplay is without accusation, they lived in open fellowship. There were no dimensions of shame. They didn't need a covering because they could freely interact and relate and no one's analyzing, critiquing, accusing. But then the serpent comes in and he's the crafty one who now nakedness is not going to become just open fellowship without the without really accusation and shame and all of those issues, he's going to twist it so now nakedness becomes, out of our sense of shame, the thing that must be covered. We now have to create distance and all of those things, if that makes sense. So there's this wordplay is, is connecting those two things, and it's, and it's, very, it, it, it's quite powerful what happens after he comes. Because the product of accusation is shame. That's why the text goes out of the way to point out to you they lived without shame until the serpent came. Once the serpent came, what was the immediate response? I've got to cover myself. I'm, Adam and Eve are no longer relating to each other the same way, and I'm definitely not relating to God the same way. Right? There's a, there's a distance. And what happens when accusation comes in, it produces a shame 
And then you either live out of that shame or you flip and you live out of pride. And what happens is either way, accusation distorts the image of God. If it distorts it to, right, to shame, you now live distant from God, which is what Adam and Eve immediately did, right? I don't want to be close to God. And that's why God comes and goes, who told you? Who told you you needed to separate yourself from me? What's wrong with you? Right? Shame causes us to back away from who we're supposed to be, particularly by pulling away from God and pulling away from each other. Right? Because now we're in a place of insecurity, profound insecurity. So shame goes rampant because of accusation. The other byproduct is the issue of pride. We, we, or we operate in a pride, meaning when accusation hits us, we go the opposite way. I'm not that. I'm more powerful. I'm greater. I'm stronger, uh, uh, so to speak. And I begin to act like the serpent in arrogance towards others, etc. So, so there's actually the, this realm of accusation tends to produce these two seemingly opposite things. The, 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 you know, accusation would make me feel weak. I'm not weak. I'm proud and arrogant. Or you might go, oh, I am weak and I am insecure, and then you get, you get gripped by shame. There's two realms that accusation operates in. I've already mentioned these, but, but, it's, but we need to f- hone in on them for just a minute. One is accusation against ourselves, right? We all know deep down something's wrong. (laughs) All humans know something, whether they know the gospel, don't know the gospel, every human knows deep down that, that something is wrong. And so again, we try to resolve this either by lashing at each other in arrogance or relating to each other through the lens of insecurity. And what happens is either way, the product is that we accuse each other, right? The dimension to which accusation wounds me causes me to then wound you. Either I react to the sense of insecurity by being strong and proud, which I'm now going to accuse you because you're not strong like me. You're not proud like me. You're not capable like me. You can't measure up. You can't do what I can do. Or out of my insecurity, I'm going to point out all of your insecurities in some case to try to settle and protect the issues in my own heart. Does that make sense? The accusation produces those two things. You can see it in kids even, right? If you release, if someone releases an accusation, there's either two responses. They either shut down or they lash out. I'm not that. It's either fight or you're right, and there's a shutdown. There's one of two reactions. And then those reactions cause us to propagate accusations against each other. Out of my strength, I'm going to attack you, or out of my insecurity, I'm going to try to pull you down to what I feel if that makes sense. And again, we're going to see in a minute, the, there is a powerful resolution to this called the grace of God. But the, the, the accusation operates powerfully within us and then among the body. We have to see that. That it is distorting our view of ourselves before God and then our relationships with each other. The second realm is accusation against God. And I would, all, I would like to suggest that we tolerate this more than we realize because we don't see it. 
Okay, that's why we're going after it. This is actually what Eve got tripped up on. Remember, she, she, had, she had no sin. She didn't have issues of pride and shame. So the enemy couldn't hit her on personal accusation yet. So he hit her with accusations against God. Right? And I want to say this. Unless you solve this, you can't solve accusation against yourself and others. This is actually the realm where we have to do war. If we solve accusation against God, that releases the power of the grace of God, which we'll mention in a minute, and enables this to be healed in our own hearts. And when I say our own hearts, I'm talking about individually, meaning within my internal conversation, and then corporately in our broader conversation. And we become a people that don't tolerate this. But the place to start is actually not your accusation against you and your accusation against each other. The place to start is actually our accusation against God. Once that gets clean, the other ones become a natural outworking. Right? Eve's root sin was not accusation against herself. It was accusation against God. That was the poison that produces the fruit. And, and if... Yes, we need to deal with our own internal accusation, but if we don't go all the way to accusation against God, we haven't fully uprooted the issue, if that makes sense, right? And, and I would suggest this has a few different uh, expressions. Um, again, I'm just kind of sharing with you, this isn't uh, the uh, magnum opus on accusation, but I would suggest to you there's a few expressions. For example, there is just bold, open rebellion, it's probably not the main issue most people in this room are dealing with, is my guess. If, if you've come to, you know, to, to worship with the saints that's, and you value the body, this is probably not your primary thing. But we see us in the earth, right? And all of us did participate or have in some way. Just a bold, I'm not going to live according to your ways, your values, your restraints. That is a bold accusation that basically says, you don't know what's best for me, I know what's best for me. It doesn't get processed that way, but that is the root of all sin. I know what's best for me. You don't. You don't have my good in mind. This is more fun. This is more enjoyable. This is more important. Whatever, fill in the adjectives. But there is just bold, open rebellion against God. Right? The, the second one, or the more subtle way, is that when we filter God's commands and instructions through our own wisdom. Meaning... The word clearly tells us to do it, but we come up with ways and reasons we don't need to do it. And then we call it wisdom. I, I had a friend mention this to me years ago. He said, anytime a preacher reads a passage and his first statement is, now, now this does not mean this, he said, I get nervous because he's trying to remove the sting of the scripture from me and give me an out to not obey what Jesus clearly said. And I'm not saying there's no realm for wisdom and how do I obey you. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I am saying we sometimes call wisdom modifying the commands of Jesus and not actually obeying them. And here's the reason we do that. Accusation. We don't think that Jesus' commands have our best interests in mind. He says things to us and we're like, I don't think that's really the best thing. Now, we don't verbalize that. We don't articulate it. But what you need to see is that is a root. That is the root, to be honest. 
of, of our sin. We need to expose that. I mean, I've been confronted of that myself. I read certain things like Jesus, and he goes, hey, if anyone asks you for something, give it to them. And I'm like, hold on, Jesus. Like, you got, that, that doesn't work down here. <laughs> right? Like, don't, well, I, I just, I've been reflecting going, I don't think I agree with you on this one, Jesus. <laughs> Why? Because I've got a little accusation. You don't actually know how it works down here. I've got limited resources, and it's not so easy, and things like that. You know, I've been reflecting recently, like, I don't know if this has ever been true for you. It's been true for me, and I've certainly heard it. This idea of, like, well, Jesus was Jesus because he's the most perfect human, right? Who can be that, right? Who can do all the good Jesus did? Who can react the way Jesus did? Because, after all, he's a perfect human. He's a good human. So we look up to him. We honor him. And then just something just crashed in on me, and I went, wait a minute. Jesus is not just a better human. Jesus does whatever God does when God becomes human. So the, the degree to which I don't want to do what Jesus does is the degree to which I don't like God. It's not about being, he's just better than me. I'm going, I don't act like Jesus because I don't like God. That's my problem. Again, I'm talking about my areas of disagreement. We understand that I'm not talking about our realms of performance and all of that, right? We know that Jesus is a sinless person. That's a huge advantage. Huge. I'm just talking about the fact that in a situation, I don't do what I know Jesus would do. I'm talking about that, okay? I'm not measuring your performance. I don't think the Lord measures performance the way our legalism works. But I am going and going, yeah, I don't want to do that. I know you would do that, but I don't want to do that. So our natural response is, you know what, I'm just not as good as Jesus. And I'm okay with that because he's perfect. I mean, who could be perfect? Right? Only Jesus. That was my thing. For yeah, yeah. I'm like, I can't be perfect. Only he is perfect. And then finally it crashed in on me. Oh, the problem is not he's perfect. I'm not. I don't want to do what I know he would do because I don't like God. Because he's just doing what God does when he becomes human. He's not trying to keep better rules. He's just going, when God becomes human, this is how I relate to people. It's how I treat people. It's how I respond. And you don't like me. Meaning, he's not saying you don't like me at all. He's just going, we've got disagreement here. Right? Where does that disagreement come from? It comes from an accusation that my way of living is better for me than your way of being human. It comes from a deep accusation based on what is the way to thrive and prosper. Because clearly, I'm not doing what Jesus would do because I think my way is better for me. And, and the Lord's like, actually, my way is how you were meant to be. It is better, a better way of living. But you've got another definition of what you think a higher. And I think the, these are the realms where we probably struggle the most. And we, to be honest, I think are deceived the most, meaning... I, my guess is probably no one in this room is going, I accuse you, God, I don't like you. But we have to expose it. I think the Lord's going to kindly go, here's what's really going on. And I think the Lord would say, I know you like me, and I've seen your growth, and it's amazing. And it, I think that the beautiful thing about God is he can both see your failures and your reach, and he loves your reach, and he wants to gently fix the failures. Right? It's the way we deal with three-year-olds. We love them. They're cute. We send people pictures of them. And then we go, you really got to clean up your room. Like, I'm really over this, right? But we still really love them, right? And again, that's our limited ability to love. How much more the Lord can both correct you and go, you don't like me on this area. Just like your three-year-old doesn't like the way you want to keep the house. 
doesn't like your rules. And you're like, you're going to love my rules, <laughs> right? But at the same time, and your, your heart is not filled with, I don't like you. You're like, no, I love you. I'm, I would do anything for you. I would die for you. Like, I'm full of affection, but you really are going to have to come into agreement with me about what the house looks like, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I just, I might say statements that seem harsh and direct, but I'm just saying that because the Lord's like, I want to show you what's actually going on. But the Lord has so much affection at this. He, he can balance that in ways we can't. So I just want you to be anchored in that. My, my favorite example is Jeremiah chapter 2. God's rebuking Israel in her disobedience through Jeremiah. And if you've ever read the story of Israel, you remember the story in the wilderness, right? When the Lord called, delivered Israel from Egypt, brought her to the wilderness. And if you've read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers... Deuteronomy, you're like, wow, that was a train wreck, right? Like God's judging, disciplining, there's idolatry going on. And then when God speaks to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2, he goes, oh, Israel, you're driving me nuts. And he goes, I remember the devotion of your youth when you followed me in the wilderness. And I'm going, I would not have summarized Exodus, Leviticus, no way that way. Right, the lens of affection. I mean, God, because you, you go back and read it, God's super clear. He's not confused about their idolatry at all. He kills people. I mean, he's, he's, but when he zooms out, he goes, oh man, you were following me. We were together. And I'm like, what is going on? Like God enjoyed a rebellious people. Like I, in ways we can't imagine. The closest example I have is the three-year-old. It's the three-year-old, right? It's the way the three-year-old gets a little older. Someone comes over to the house. Man, she's amazing. Oh, let me pull that picture. And she was three. She was so cute. She was adorable. And your friends are like, dude, I was there when she was three. You were a wreck. You were like, what am I going to do? I can't sleep. This girl's driving me nuts. She won't do X, Y, Z. And then 10 years later, she be she's becoming a young woman. She's in a whole different phase of life. You know, oh, she was adorable when she was three. I miss having toddlers. You're like, really? <laughs> really? Because <laughs> that's not how you were talking 10 years ago, right? And again, it's just the point is just the lens of affection. I just, I don't want us to pull that out of the equation because otherwise we'll, we'll misread God, okay? So he's got affection and he wants to cut out this cancer of accusation, okay? So we, we filter God's commands to our own wisdom or preferences, I say wisdom because we call it wisdom. It's really our preferences, and it's really our accusation. You don't know the best way to be human. I do. And it also leads to us sometimes struggling when he asks us to do something. Our struggle is really about an accusation going, you're asking me to do something I don't want to do. There's so many things I'm doing now that when he first told me, I was like, yeah, I don't want to do that at all. Could someone else do that? And, and I'm realizing, oh, that was, and now I'm going to go in, no, I enjoy doing that. Thank you for the assignment. But when it first came, I was like, I don't want to do that. What's that? That's my little accusation going, hey, you don't know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. That's not what's best for me. And he's like, actually, I made you to do that. Would you please do it? No, 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 but that wasn't what I was planning on. Like, I had other goals in mind. I had other agendas. And he's like, I know. But that's your definition of what you think is best for you, and you think you know better than me, and I actually made you and have a glorious purpose for you in mind. So the, this realm of accusation against God is really our root issue. Solve this, and the rest gets solved. 
You can start dealing, you can start detoxing the internal accusation, and then you'll have the ability to detox the external accusations that we propagate. But I will warn you, the detox process will be very disorienting because, because you'll start seeing the world so differently, you'll be like, wait, am I crazy? Like, what's wrong? Like, like our age is so saturated with the spirit of the age. Our world is so saturated with a, a, a values and thoughts and, and value systems that when we start to detox, we're like, am I right? Like, no one thinks like this. That's not true. The Lord has many saints. But, you know, you're just like, am I crazy? And then, and then you begin to discover, actually, you're getting detoxed in a, in a profound way. The fruit of accusation, I'll just sum this up, and then we'll talk about the power of God's grace, because that really is a solution. The fruit of accusation, um, I'll just give you two quick things. One, it limits our ability to obey God. We just talked about that, because we don't obey God, because we don't think His way is right. We don't say that, but that's really what's, what's going on. Um, and uh, so, so that's the expression that comes out of pride, right? God, I don't think you've got the best in mind for me. But there's another reason we don't obey God, which is simply out of shame, right? We're not confident that we can do what God's asking us to do. We're not confident God's leading us because of accusation has created a place of shame. Hopefully this makes sense. And again, that's, that's distorting the image of God in us. So it limits our ability to obey God. But here's the other thing that I've mentioned, but we need to emphasize. It creates distance. Right? The goal of accusation against God is to get you as far away from God as possible. The serpent wants distance. Right? He doesn't want you to be close. That, that's why the word plays in Genesis are connecting all these things. The Satan, divination, right? Nakedness. All these things are being connected by word plays. I'm not saying, you know what I'm saying? It's word play. I'm not saying, therefore, the Hebrew word automatically means this. But there are word plays going on that you need to recognize. Because he's trying to communicate something. Is that when you give in to the way of the serpent, which is accusation, you're now subject to his divination, you're acting in a way that's like divination, and you're now creating space. You're aware of, quote-unquote, nakedness. I need to be covered in distance, because if I let you get too close to me, that's going to expose me, and I can't handle that exposure. And I sure need to get away from God. And the further we get away from God, as you know, the more distorted our definition of what it means to be human becomes. Right? So, so this root of accusation is, is so powerful. But there is a powerful solution. This is what I want to hone in on, is the solution. It's the power of the grace of God. Now, I got to say this because when we think grace, we morph grace into mercy. Right? And so we need to reset our definitions. Mercy is, oh my goodness, God's not giving me what I deserve. Right, I deserve this penalty. I'm not going to receive it. That is glorious. Grace is, you know, the definition you probably learned in church, the unmerited favor of God. But, but I think for whatever reason, it doesn't really land with us. Grace means God's disposition towards you is good. It's what I just talked about the three-year-old. Even on your worst day, like a three-year-old who just 
turned over a bowl of Cheerios in the kitchen, your mom still likes you. Like even when she's saying the stuff that she just repented for during worship, she still likes you. Right? The grace of God is the, is, is the revelation, and I think it's a revelation. It's not just data points. It's the revelation that God is for you, thinks positively about you, deeply likes you, though he may have issues with your behavior still, but he is deeply for you and towards you. And this is the power that dethrones accusation because, remember, accusation against God is our fundamental problem, Right? An accusation against God lives on because we don't like him and we don't think he likes us. That's how the arrow got into Eve's heart. God doesn't really like you. And he's kind of going, but he made all this garden. Like, he's sweet. I think he's good. And the serpent's like, he doesn't actually like you. You think he does, but he's manipulating you. He's holding back from you. He's restraining things from you because he doesn't actually like you the way you thought he liked you. You thought he made you for communion and majesty and dominion, but actually, no. God's actually trying to keep you lower and trying to restrain you and not actually uh, 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 give you what he made you for. So the grace of God is the thing that shatters accusations. Now I'm just going to read Bible verses because I want you to see this in the Bible. Right? I'm just going to read a couple verses, kind of one after another. I'll do first Ephesians chapter two, verses four through eight. Paul says, God being rich in mercy. I mean, listen, just let try to hear this language like you've never heard it. Right. God, who was rich in mercy because of the great love that he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses. What a statement. Not on your best day when you did not like him. He was rich in mercy towards you, filled with affection, right? He made you alive together with Christ. And look at this. By grace, you've been saved. How are you saved? God's kind, positive disposition towards you. The, I, we don't say it anymore, but 100, 200 years ago, they would have said you're in the king's good graces, means the king likes you. And you can get things done. And if you ask for something, you're going to get it. I used to use this example uh, years ago when we had President Obama. I used to say, if you wanted something from President Obama, think about trying to be a cabinet member or one of his daughters. If you're a cabinet member, you are agonizing over your proposal. You know, you're trying to perfect all your documents. Maybe I can get five minutes with him. Hopefully I can convince him to give me a billion dollars or do this budget or do like, like you've got these protocols and you've got a bit of insecurity, right? Because you might walk in the office and he might go, yeah, I don't care about your department right now because we have a crisis over here. But if you remember when he was president, he had young daughters. I guarantee you they approach very differently. They're like, uh, excuse me, dad. I want this. I'm pretty confident. It's a completely different conversation because you're like, I got dad's favor. I'm going to relate to him very differently. I'm not going to stay up all night trying to write a paper and with graphs and budgets and prove that he needs to do what I want. I'm going to step right in front of him. He may not do exactly what I want, but the point is I know I've got grace with him. And so I approach him very, very differently. 
And so then Paul goes on and says, he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the thing I want you to think about. God was not obligated to do any of this. What Paul's saying is this is what God wanted to do. This is what he loves to do. And if you read these words seriously, you'd be going, but, but I'm me. I should not be enthroned in the highest places in the heavens. If you think you should be, you have a distorted view of you. <laughs> just saying. I mean, I like all of you, but I'm not sure I want any of you to run the universe just yet. But God does. That's the shocking thing. He's enjoying this. And look at this. Why did he raise you up? So that for the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches what? of his grace in kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. He wants to demonstrate how much he likes you by exalting you to a place you don't deserve. That should shatter every accusation against him. I don't like the way he wants me to live or handle my money or spend my time. And he goes, I know you don't. And I want to exalt you to help me govern the cosmos alongside my uncreated son. Really? Like that's what you have in mind? Yes, that's what I told Eve I was going to do for her until the serpent put his venom in all of y'all. So you want me to govern the cosmos and that makes you happy? Yes. So maybe what you're asking me to do that I don't want to do might be good for me. Yes. If you're a healthy parent, the stuff you're asking your three-year-old to do is actually good for them. If you're a healthy parent, you don't give them rules to try to punish them or manipulate them or whatever. But they, at first, they're like, this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know if I want to do it. Um, and this is the, what Paul's, Paul's showing you. And look what he says in verse 8. I love this. For by what? Grace you've been saved. I would have picked mercy. Right? Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you've been saved. I would go, well, just mercy, because, you know, God had to forgive all my sins, and mercy is for sure in the equation. But I love right here, when Paul's reflecting on this, he goes, guys, what saved you is that God really liked you. It's the power of his affection towards you. That's actually what delivers you. But it only delivers you through what? What's the next verse? Through, by grace you've been saved through faith. Which means what? You've got to put your confidence in God's affections to root out this accusation. Does that make sense? By grace, you've been saved, but you're only going to experience that salvation when your heart goes, I'm willing to believe the unbelievable. I'm willing to reverse the thing that caught Eve. Eve believed God didn't have her best in mind. I'm willing to believe God has my best in mind even after I've failed, disfigured humanity, caused conflict with other humans, done all kinds of things. If you're willing to put your faith in that, the grace or the favor of God towards you will actually deliver you out of the realm of accusation and sin. And, and look at this. I love the next part of the verse. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Like your salvation, it's a gift of God towards you. The power of his affection towards you will set you free if you'll just believe in it. And if you're going, I can't believe that. That's unbelievable because of what I did or whatever. Whatever the thing is that's keeping you doubting, Paul's going, ask him and he'll help you. Like he'll give you the ability to put your trust in him. 
and it will result in your salvation. You have to, but, but he's going, if you want to experience the power of grace, you've got to believe God instead of the accusation. You've got to root it out. Okay, I'm going to read from 2 Timothy. Again, I'm just giving you a couple passages so you can see this. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. Paul's actually exhorting Timothy to endure suffering and hardship. And he says, verse 8, Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So he's saying, Paul, Timothy, lean in, be willing to suffer, be strengthened by the power of God, not the power of your own strength. Verse 9, who saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our our works, but because of his purpose, what he had in mind, and because of his grace, because he wanted to, because he delighted in it. And look at that, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In other words, Timothy, he's going, jump in because God had this kind disposition towards you. He looked down the reels of history and went, I want to show affection towards people, so I want to bring them into my Son, which will cover all their sin and all their imperfection so they can experience the desire I have, right? Again, it's it's the three-year-old, right? If you're a healthy parent, you want to show all your affection to the three-year-old, and that's what he's going, going, God wants to show his affection to you, Timothy, so you can endure and overcome, and he's made it possible in Jesus, and it was in his mind a long time ago. He's been longing to do it for a long time. This this grace, verse 10, has now been manifested through the appearing of Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality. Don't you love this? He's basically saying, Jesus did not appear because I was obligated to save humans. It's the Father saying, Jesus appeared because there was grace and affection in my heart towards you. And so I did everything possible to remove the wall and the restraint and bring you back into communion. To root this accusation out of your heart. Which Paul expresses in another passage going, if he gave us his son, won't he give us everything? Like this is another way of saying the same thing. Where God's going, I had so much affection towards you, I sent my son to destroy the effects of your confidence in accusations against me. In other words, you sided with accusation, so now you're subject to sin and death and conflict and insecurity and pride and all these things. But I loved you so much, I sent my son to detox you from that so you can experience the affection I already have towards you. I mean, these are, I mean, this is the gospel. This is, in a sense, elementary. In another sense, it's profoundly powerful. Because once this gets rooted in your heart and explodes your accusations against God, it's going to be explosive in how you relate to other people, and it's going to be explosive in your internal conversations. In ways you, you, you can probably barely imagine. And I'll just skip down. I just, as long as we're here, I'll read verse 12. Paul says, he says, look, I am not ashamed because I know who I believe. Look at this. I'm convinced he is able to guard until that day everything he's entrusted to me. In other words, Paul's got this overwhelming confidence that even in suffering, God can keep him and preserve him. When you begin to read the New Testament, you notice something very interesting. Every single Pauline epistle, yes, I've checked, every single one begins with grace to you from Jesus. That's his introduction. I want you to experience the favor of Jesus. 
Now I'm going to give you some instructions, which are sometimes intense, right? You guys need to fix this and that. But he always begins it somewhere in the first, I'm going to make up the first five verses. I haven't checked that. But it's, you know, it's always in his first initial introduction. He goes, grace to you from Jesus. Grace to you from the Father. He want, he, it's like it's exploding out of him. If you can get anchored in the way God thinks about you, it's going to shatter all your little accusations, all your areas that you're tolerating, even the ones you don't recognize, and you're going to come into the fullness of, of what you're made to be. I'll give you uh, just two, two little examples from the early church, from the book of Acts. I'll just, we'll just read these quickly. But Acts chapter 4. You remember Acts chapter, uh, no, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2. No, Acts chapter 4, I was right. Acts chapter 4, the end of the chapter. If you remember, the, 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 the disciples were experiencing some trouble, so they had a prayer meeting, right? And they said, Lord, stretch out your hand to heal. Stretch out your hand to do signs and wonders, right? And they had a, they had a prayer meeting. It says in verse 31 that while they were prayed, the place they were gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, they spoke the word of God of boldness. The full number of those who believed were in one heart and one soul. No one said that anything that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. With great power, the disciples were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. And look what it said. And what? Great grace was on all of them. Isn't that interesting? Because there was not a needy person among them that People that owned lands or houses, sold them, brought the proceeds, laid at the apostles' feet, distributed to anyone who had need. I mean, we so often hone in on these verses, right, as, as descriptions of the power of the apostolic church. They've got power. They've got signs. They've got wonders. They've got the social demonstration. You have a need, I'll, and I've got something, I'll sell it to cover your need. They're sharing with each other. They're sharing life. They're in houses, sharing meals, conversation. All of these verses, and right in the middle of it, Luke summarizes it by saying, guys, great grace was on all of them. When great grace takes hold on your heart, what does it produce? You operate in the power of God. Because now you don't go, well, maybe if I fast enough, I can earn the power of God. Maybe if I can hold it together for five or ten years, I can get mature enough to move in the power of God. This is Peter who denied the Lord. I can't do math right now. But within a few months, this wasn't after 20 years of maturity. He had just denied the Lord. Now he's operating in realms of power. Why? Because the grace of God is great on him. He experienced it from his interaction with Jesus after Jesus' crucifixion. And that confidence has opened up realms of spiritual power for him. It's not that he's the most mature guy. In fact, when later on, he's going to be in Antioch, and you probably know the story because Paul references it in Galatians, when he's going, I had to rebuke Peter. The power of that is Peter's still making mistakes. I can't do math on that one either yet, but I think it's 20 years later. 20 years later, he's still making mistakes. Yeah, but the grace of God is rooted in his heart, and so he's operating in dimensions of power, even when he's still coming up short, still needs to grow. That's what grace can do for you. And it led to the sharing of things among each other. Because it broke down those walls of accusation and privatism and protectionism and shame or pride or all the things that keep divisiveness. The great grace rested on them. So they said, okay, we're like one big family now. 
That doesn't mean no one ever offended each, each other. doesn't mean there were no problems. But that grace released an open-headedness and a warmth of community that we all read that verse and we're longing for that and the Acts 2.42 and all of that stuff. And Luke goes, it's because the grace of great grace was on them. They're experiencing it. They believed in it. And it was operating. A couple chapters later, we run into the first martyr in the New Testament era, Stephen. And I'm just going to read what it says about Stephen in Acts chapter 6, verses 7 to 8. It says, The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. A great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. Look at this. And Stephen, what? Full of grace and power was doing great signs and wonders. I would have put something else there. Full of holiness and power. I'm not saying holiness doesn't matter. It's not the point. I think you understand that. Stephen, perfectly obedient, operated in power. Yes, obedience is important, right? We, don't, we, we, we love discipleship, or we should. We want to love it. But Luke described it as powers operating. He's full of grace, and that's unlocked things. Because the grace of God is on him. Right? And, gra- and here's the thing. Grace is not blindness. Because in our time, grace has been, by some people, probably not even most, but some, we have what we call distorted grace, right? Which is just, God loves everyone, doesn't care what they do, doesn't care your living condition, doesn't care your response. He just likes everyone, right? But here's the thing about biblical grace is it's not blindness, right? I'll, I'll give you an example, a verse that some of you probably know, Zechariah chapter 3. I'll just summarize it for the sake of time. And in, in Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua the high priest, right, he sees a vision, stands before the Lord, and his garments are filthy. The Satan starts releasing accusations, right? You ever thought about that? The, 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 the Satan so operates an accusation, he makes you insecure in accusation. Then he accuses God to you. But then have you ever thought he stands before God and accuses us to God? That's what Revelation 12 says he does. Have you ever thought about what that does to God? When God's like, I've covered their sin, and the Satan keeps releasing accusations. You can't cover them. You can't save them. Aren't you holy? Aren't you righteous? I thought you didn't like sin. I thought you cared about this. That's what he's doing right now. Yes, he does it to us, but up there he challenges God. How can you love those people? Yeah, you can't imagine what that does to God. And that's what he does right here. He goes, look at that Joshua character. And what's the Lord do? He rebukes him and knows what he does. He doesn't, make a, he doesn't say Joshua isn't really that. He rebukes him. And then he looks at Joshua and goes, okay, we're going to change your outfit. And then knows what he tells him. He says, okay, now that you've experienced my grace, hey, walk carefully because I want you to fully enjoy all your privileges. You see, that the beginning of it, though, is his disposition is grace. I like you. I'm fighting for you, and your garments are filthy. The Lord doesn't, tell, doesn't deny it. That's great. He doesn't deny it at all. He says, it's actually true, but I'm going to swap your garments. I'm going to challenge you, respond to me, and say, here's the thing. This is what gives grace so much power. This is not God's blindness. This is not God saying, I don't care what you do. This is God going, I 
am favorable towards you, even though I know your condition. And we are constantly trying to clean up our condition to get close to God. And God's going, that's not how grace works. The way grace works is, I know your condition. Get closer to me. Root out accusation. It's counterintuitive to us, right? Holy God, I've got to approach him in holiness. Okay, that's true. But now define holiness. What does it mean to approach God the way he wants to be approached? It means I start getting before God and going, okay, I'm acknowledging my condition, but I've rooted out accusation because my heart tells me that you don't like me or you'll kill me if I get close. But instead I'm going, because of what your son did, I'm going to get as close as I can. And the Lord's like, that's it. And the Lord's actually going to address your issues too. He's not going to say, okay, it's okay. He's going to go, you're right. You need to deal with that. But the power of grace is because I know he likes me, it gives me the courage to face his rebukes. Right? Accusation, even if, you're, even if your response to accusation is proud, I'm not like that. I'm stronger. It still it produces an insecurity where you actually can't bear God's rebukes. You live in unreality. You can't accept your true condition, but grace enables you to actually have an honest conversation anchored by the fact that he likes you even in your condition. Right? The grace of God doesn't wait for you to become mature. It provides the missing element to enable you to grow into maturity. What is maturity? Get in the image of God. What does accusation do? Distorts the image of God. That's why you have to discern between accusation, condemnation, and conviction. Convictions where God's going, this is me. See, you're not that. We need to change, right? But condemnation is a distorted view. See who you are, see who I am. You can never recover this, right? So the grace of God actually detoxes and removes that accusation so you can actually be bear the conversation with the Lord so that things can change, right? We're not talking about a blindness, but what happens is now you're in a place of safety and security because we know his posture towards us, which is the fracture of Genesis 3. I don't think God has my own interest in mind, so I'm going to follow the path the serpent put in front of me. Now, if I get re-anchored to go, he has my best interest in mind. And what he wants me to do, even the stuff I don't want to do, is actually in my best interest. That becomes a magnet that starts pulling me towards him. And the more I detox, the more I become, come into his image, if that makes sense. So the, all right, we'll read, read one more passage. Revelation chapter 12, we have to go here but we'll just we'll mention it as we kind of try to pull all the threads together. Revelation chapter 12, I'll read just verses 10 and 11. These might be familiar verses to you, or they might be new verses. But this is describing, essentially, the victory of God at the end of the age over the Satan or the dragon. Look at this. And it says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. 
who accuses them day and night before our God. He accuses you before God. Sorry, he accuses, he releases accusations against you, against God. But right here we're told he actually has the guts to stand before God and accuse you. That's mind-blowing to me. Like, what kind of arrogance is that to stand before the uncreated God and tell him he can't do what he wants to do with the humans he made? That, that's just mind-blowing to me. But how does he get removed? Does God cast him out of the heavens? It actually says in verse 11, he gets removed because the saints have conquered him. This is why I said in the very beginning, I said this whole age will not end until the saints conquer accusation. Because what this is saying is the accuser of the brethren stays, the, the implication is he stays up there on the basis of accusation. That seems to be what enthrones him in the passage if you zoom out. Again, this, uh, this is humans in open accusation against God that give him space to operate. And this is us in our subtle accusations against God, which genuinely we may be deceived. I'm not trying to say everyone's trying to rage against God. It's, it's the effects of the, venoms, the venom of the serpent, right? But it says right here, the saints are going to conquer him. I love it. By the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they don't love their lives to death. I love that the blood of the lamb enables you to shatter the power of accusation. The grace of God becomes real and manifest to you, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And then the word of your testimony, you begin speaking different language. Your words become different. I think it starts with your internal words, right? And then that overflows into our words about each other, towards each other, among each other, and everything changes. And notice what happens when this happens. A loud voice in heaven erupts and says, Now the salvation, power, kingdom, authority of Jesus has come because there's a people on the earth who have broken through the barrier of accusation. Jesus secured it. That's clear. They conquered by the blood of Jesus. We're not taking anything away from Jesus. But Jesus says, now I'm looking at you. Will you dethrone him? Because here's the thing. The Lord, it's his, he only stays in that place because we yield to him. Does that make sense? Yes, Jesus could choose to remove him from that place. But Jesus doesn't want to remove him from that place and let the venom of accusation stay in your soul. Does that make sense? He's going, I want a people that have cleansed this out of their system. That's why he's waiting, so to speak. That's why he set it up this way. I want my people to cleanse themselves of the venom and let them dethrone him. It's not hard for the Lord to move him out of the way. But if he doesn't cleanse your own soul from this issue, he doesn't get what he wants, which is very people dwelling with him in openness and warmth and open relationship and things like that. So once the Satan gets thrown down, even though if you, if you read this passage, you'll find it describes a narrow window of time uh, related to the very end of the age and describes, hey, there'll be some great trouble when he gets thrown to the earth. Like it's not yet over for him, though this is the beginning of his end. 
in a sense, at, at the very end. But here's the thing. Once he gets thrown to the earth, we cannot imagine what it looks like when the heavens are blown open and there's no more accusation. Like, as much as I love all our charismatic conferences, we have never lived under a real open heaven. We haven't. I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun of anyone. And, and I know the Lord is, there are seasons, whether it's the Welsh revival or something else, where we're like, it's a different atmosphere. I'm not saying those don't exist. I'm not trying to make fun of them. What I'm trying to say is we've still never tasted a truly open heaven where he's not up there at all. He can't interfere at all. We can't imagine what that's like. That's what we're getting hints of in Acts chapter 4. Wow, power is operating. They're living among each other differently, and, they're, and the power of God and the miraculous is flowing in a way it's not normally flowing. That's what happens. That's the preview. And that's what you're called to be as a church. When people walk in here, they should begin to go, what, what, what is this? This is a different realm, right? Because, because you're in, they're entering into an accusation-free zone where people are detoxing from the serpent's venom. And people are going, man, God asked me to do this thing. I don't really want to do it. It's tough. But you know what? I'm going to say yes because I now trust his grace more than I do my own resistance to whatever that is. Maybe it's give this or go there or do this. I don't think I want to do it, but I'm going to say yes. Right? Or, I'm gonna, or we're loving each other. We're refusing to speak words about each other that are ungodly and truly not helpful. Right? That's why I think it's so interesting in Revelation 12. How did they conquer him? The blood, obviously, and then it's the stuff they said. Like when your inner man gets settled, you're like, I just don't need to talk about him. I don't need to talk about her. It's actually not helpful. It's the serpent's venom. I may not be aware of that. I may not be, but our, so much of our processing is tainted, right? Or there are times I need to say things that I wouldn't say otherwise or, or whatever it is. I don't, I don't know. But we've never lived like this, but the church is called to prefigure or foreshadow this. Then when you come among the saints, you're like, that's a very, look at how they deal with people who failed. That's really differently. Look at how they're gentle. Look at their speech. Look at their confidence before God. Right? The realm to which you've conquered accusation is demonstrated by how you respond to God on your worst day. That really is the demonstration. No, we're all guilty. I'm guilty. We're all guilty. But it doesn't change the truth. Is is the realm to which we've conquered is demonstrated when you... You have a failure. You have a sin. You miss God. You're like, I knew this was God. You go out and do it, and you figure six months later, actually, it wasn't God. I really screwed up. I wasted time. I wasted money, whatever. Do you shrink back from God? Or do you go and go, all right, I went for it. It wasn't it. Right? Accusation will go, hey, don't try again. A cleansed heart goes, okay, we went for it. That wasn't it. Now show me where I missed it, and let's go again. Because that's how God thinks. He's not worried by how much money you lost or how much time you lost. He's like, hey, you're going for it. Let's go. Yeah. Right? And I'm not, again, I'm not saying your sin doesn't matter. But if you fell or stumbled into a sin or a habit like that, the way to get out of your sin is not to pull back from God. Yeah. That's not holy. It's not to pull back from the saints. That's not helpful either. Now, again, you might need some 
relational help and strength. So I'm not saying you don't have a conversation. Go, hey, brother, would you help me? Because I fell in this way, right? You call and help. But, but again, as accusation gets rooted out of your heart, you can have that conversation, right? Instead of being ashamed of having a conversation with you, I'll go, I can't believe I did this, but I'm going to tell you and ask you to stand with me. And if you have a spirit of accusation, you're going to tell five of your other friends, well, you need to pray for him because, you know. And I'm not saying there are, we, there are right ways to say let's pray together and contend, but sometimes we share prayer requests, you know, in ways that are ungodly. I'm not saying you can't share with others in a godly way. I think you know that. But when this accusation gets rooted out and you fail, you're going to run to someone in your small group and say, hey, would you help me? And they'll go, I'd love to help you. Right? You're going to run to the Lord on your drive to work. Your devotions are going to be sweet because you're going to go, I know I failed yesterday, but the power of grace. Because as you get close to him and he gets attractive to you and you feel his affection, you're going to go, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that because you don't like that. Right? It has unbelievable power. And, and notice the results here. <laughs> like in, in, in Revelation 12, when you read the whole story of Revelation, you find, oh my goodness, in this, this, this church that is conquering, they don't accuse each other anymore. How do you know? Because it keeps telling you they're from every tribe. They're from every tongue. They're from every people group. Do you know how hard that is to do? We can barely get along within our own ethnicities. And Revelation's going, they love each other, and they're so, they can't even speak the same languages, but they love, and they're in mutual affection and warmth. Why? Because they've removed all the accusation. They're not going, well, the Africans, they do this. Oh, the Asians, oh my goodness. No one can get me started on this. Instead, there's just mutual affection and bonds between each other and warmth. Because accusation's gone, and they receive from each other. You see, the fruit of it is this people that arise out of the nations as one people. That's the end of accusation. And not only that, we, you do find the, the sobriety of the book of Revelation. Here in chapter 12, and chapter 7, other places, many go to death, many go to martyrdom, many go to suffering. You can go, well, how that's connected to accusation? Well, when our hearts get free of accusation, we go, Father, we'll do whatever you ask us to do, even if it costs our life. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus said, I'm not sure I want to drink that cup, but I will. Because I trust you. Right? So we're willing to go, if it goes unto death, we'll go unto death. We're not trying to make that happen. We're not loving that. It's, it's just, I have no accusation against you. If you call me to walk a path, even if it goes there, I'll go there because I know that's for my best. You're going to shock and amaze me in what, the good you bring out of it. And so it produces this mature people that become the demonstration of God on the earth. They walk like Jesus in how they relate to each other, how they relate to the Father. I th- I, again, I, th- I think about Jesus himself endures suffering with confidence. The Father will take care of it. He's a- even able to endure betrayal and confidence that, that, the, that the Father will, will take care of it. And again, the church is meant, is meant to be a preview of that. So let me, let me try, to, try to wrap it up with a few things here. First of all, I know there's, there, there's a lot of ministry in the room. A lot of you are leading home groups, house churches. If nothing else, 
and, and I don't, I'm not minimizing this. You're ministering your own families, friends, workplace, children, everything. There's a lot of places where you interact with other. So here's my question. Does your teaching, your conversations, your music, is that dethroning accusation? Like, are you intentionally going after this? I want to produce in this heart confidence. I want to produce in this other heart confidence. I want to go, go after this thing, right? Do you have a vision that you'd be in a community where you're uh, actively uprooting accusation? It's not enough to just say, well, we don't agree with that. We don't want to do that, right? But you need to actively uh, uh, uproot it. That's the word. You need to actively go after it because it can subtly stay there, so to speak, under under the surface. And that does take hard work. And it takes a process, right? And the place you have to start first, again, is what are our accusations against God? What are the things I'm allowing to sit in my heart? Perhaps I haven't seen them until now. They've been hidden. Like, I don't rage against God, but I do have these little areas and these things that I tolerate because I don't think he knows best. I wouldn't say it that way, but that's how it's playing out. And the Lord knows that. He's not shocked by that. He wants to help you with it. He's going, no, I still like you. That's, that's what makes accusations so painful to the Lord. Is he's like, it's not that I'm mad at you that you have that. I actually really like you, and you don't think I do. I really love you, and you don't think my commands are good because they're not reasonable to you or rational or comfortable or whatever the thing is. That's painful for him. He's not angry at you, so to speak. He's just, it's a painful thing for him. And once you settle that, your internal conversation becomes differently because your fractured psyche begins to accuse you and you go, why am I burning time accusing myself? Like the Lord, the creator, has set his grace and favor on me. So if there are deficiencies, he's going to help me correct those. And some deficiencies are simply human weakness. They're not sinful. I just have limitations. And the Lord loves me in the midst of limitations. That's going to settle your soul tremendously. And then you go after it with each other. Right? You go, ah, I don't want to have that conversation that way. I don't want to say those words. Things like that. And you begin to look for ways to give other people courage to, to uproot the same thing out of their own heart. Okay. Um, I think we're going to finish there. But I would like to, let's just take a minute and sit before the Lord. I really would like us to, to, to just talk to the Lord for a few minutes together. Because we want to ask the Lord to uproot this. I, I don't think we can just talk about it and not take a moment and pause and go, Lord, help. If we ask him to help, he'll help. He wants this more than we do. So we're just going to go to prayer for a few minutes. I'll start for prayer. Then we'll create a little bit of space. Maybe my brother can lead musically if that, if that helps. And, and we'll create just a little bit of space just to talk to the Lord. Because we, we want to respond to this. We want to say, Lord, help us. What a tragedy. We wouldn't live in the fullness of what the blood, blood has purchased. So, Father, we thank, we thank you for your word today. Lord, so many things were spoken. We, we, we just were asking you right now that you would make it plain what you want to say, the words and the phrases, the passages. On this subject, I'm just asking you right now to cut through the limitations of human words and human uh, teaching and communication. And Father, I'm asking you right now, Lord, Lord, would you let us experience right now, just give us a moment, release an experience of your affection. 
an experience of the grace of God that our hearts become captured by the power of the grace of God. Lord, we're asking for that. I'm asking for an experiential reality. However you release that to us. For all of us in the room right now, that a, a, a deep conviction, however it manifests itself, but from you, there'd be a deep something in the inner man beyond words or ideas where we would become convinced of the grace of God something that would begin to release the power of the grace of God through our psyche and our emotions and even our bodies how our bodies might even be healed and restored as we come into the power of the grace of God instead of living under the weight of accusations it even affects our bodies in ways we can't imagine, where our bodies don't function right because we've tolerated accusations against ourselves instead of living in the full grace of God. Father, I'm asking you for that right now. You'd, you'd anchor our hearts in the power of your grace. It would drive out accusation against you. That we would say, look, even if I don't understand you, Lord, I agree you're good. If you're calling me to do something I don't want to do, you're still good. There's an area in my life you're putting your finger on. I know you're still good and you're for me and you're going to help me. And Lord, I'm asking you, you would do something in this fellowship even that it would truly become an accusation-free zone. Lord, I'm asking you that there would be like a boundary set around the fellowship, like a strong wall like a fiery wall, a fiery barrier that accusation doesn't come within these borders. If anything tries to come in, it's, it's exposed because it's so contrary to the culture. If, if accusation or spirit of accusation tries to operate, that the whole community will go, no, 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 that's not us. And they expel it and deal with it. God, I'm asking you to set a wall, a fiery border around the community. The atmosphere would be different. The culture would be different. That your freedom would come, that the power and salvation and kingdom of Jesus would be put on display. We know there's a day coming when this becomes a global reality, but why not now? In the community and in the congregation, how much can we experience of the power and salvation and dominion and kingdom of Jesus among ourselves? You said in the book of Acts, great grace produced power and miracles and generosity. It brought many to faith and wholeness and salvation. It enabled a mutual love and affection that surprised everyone. So we're just, I just want to take a minute. We're going to pause for a minute. You talk to the Lord. You reflect with the Lord. Lord, ask Him maybe to highlight something. Maybe He just wants to deal with one or two things. Maybe He just wants you to enjoy the pleasure of His grace and His affection on you. Maybe He just wants you to feel it so it will empower you to overcome things that have hindered you, gripped your heart in the past might change the way you see other people or relate to them. We're just going to wait 
I'm just going to pause here for a minute. Just have your conversations.